Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Hello and welcome back to I Foresee Trouble with Dalian Wallace. Uh, we're back in Brussels in the Guess studio. Guess who's back? It's me, Damien Thompson, at the mic today. Um, had a nice few different uh, hosts the past while. They've all done a very good job. Right, uh, the spice of life. I'm happy to be back in the Don't studio worry, though. Yeah, he's delighted. Anyway, it's uh, December. So this is maybe one of our Christmas specials. Coming up, our late late toy show equivalent. We know thousands of people are <laughs> listening. Oh, Christmas <laughs> cheer out there! Stop it! You you trying to depress us? <laughs> Remind us about a fella called Tuberty. For God's sake, give me a break! Well, do you want to tell oh, the people man, back I can't in Ireland? Suffer him. Do you want to tell them back in Ireland how snowy it is in Brussels today? Quite snowy, isn't it? Uh, is that going to stick though? It's not sticking, but if you snow. go for a walk outside, you get, oh, you get covered. I was completely covered in, in fact, snow. I have, I have a story to tell about that later. Okay, Because well, it's actually linked that. to one of the subjects we're going to raise today. Okay. Well, today has, um, today's, what day? Thursday. It's been a mad week All already day. of committees. Um, we have a load of stuff to talk about. We'll go from foreign interference to a bit on climate change to um, uh, foreign affairs, of course. Uh, anti-money laundering and you had a nice chat with Mairead McGuinness I believe in committee so we'll get to that but first let's talk about uh, the big topic in the news which is nothing else but Covid so that's the only thing to talk about in Ireland well in Ireland anyway yeah. <laughs> and Meghan Markle for some reason but let's talk about Covid Ooh. instead <laughs> um Covid, Covid, Covid. We have a new variant since you, d- you did a, a podcast last week on Covid. But since then, there's been a new variant, the Omicron variant. Uh, there's been a um, mad reaction to that with countries um, in the EU and the US and others shutting their borders to Southern African countries. WHO says that's not a good response. They promote a risk based approach um, and different testing methods. And they say there's a whole load of things we should be doing. But anyway, what's um, your interpretation of how Ireland is reacting as well? They're introducing um, PCR tests and they're introducing hotel mandatory hotel quarantine in some cases and also about what the EU is doing as well what do we, what what does this new variant tell us well I suppose I find myself in the peculiar situation of beginning to think that Michael O'Leary is one of the sanest people in Ireland at this stage which is something I never thought I'd say or even think but I mean his analysis of the knee-jerk response of the Irish government in bringing in these antigen tests, which for years they have been saying since the beginning that these aren't an adequate indicator of anything and for bringing them in for people who are vaccinated to get into the country um, is utterly ludicrous. I mean, we have a scenario now where we had groups coming over to visit the parliament um, and in order to get back home, they need a, a negative PCR test within 72 hours or a negative antigen one within 48 hours. So they could actually have left Ireland, got the PCR test before they left, travelled over here and gone back 
on the same PCR test. It's with, utterly, co- with COVID. With, <laughs> the whole thing is just an absolute well, I mean, joke. It, what is the point in having a vaccination then if you're going to have to do the test thing as well? well I mean, if they did get an antigen test before they left Ireland, right, and it, and it lasts for 72 hours, they're only coming for less than 48, the, the, the people are coming over. So they can actually get it in Ireland, come here, and they're actually getting it for going back. They're going to spend two days, they're going to be on two planes, they're, on, uh, they're in Belgium for two days, so they could actually have the COVID going back. It doesn't make any sense at all. And I mean, all of the indications would seem to be that this new variant has very mild symptoms. In actual fact, it affects people less than Delta and the other ones. So in many ways, you could say they should be encouraging that one to spread rather than shutting down and blocking that one because that would neutralise some of the other ones. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And it's another very strong argument for why we needed the lifting of the TRIPS waiver as well as that. So here we have a strand being originating in other countries, countries which are largely unvaccinated and yet they continue to block them. So the contradictions are everywhere. The response in the schools without any consultation, bringing in masks for small children at a time when, you know, there's more free movement, there's a, a variant which has a lesser impact on people. There's less people, um, I suppose, dying of this. And now they're masking up primary school children. In, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, you're talking about masking kids from third class up, right? I mean, first of all, is there any medical evidence to show that this is a good idea? Because... Well, I haven't seen it, and I don't think the, the government have presented it either. But have, have they put any thought into the fact of what are they doing with the kids like? What's, what sort of an impact is it going to have on the kids? Mm. Having to, at that age, to have to actually go around all day in school with a mask on you and, confront, and try and deal with the other kids who are wearing masks as well. I mean, is it okay or is it not? Is, could it have an impact? Have they checked it out? But I mean, I'd like to see the medical evidence as uh, to back up saying that this is really important that you do it. Uh, wheeling out a minister uh, who knows bugger all about it to tell us, oh, this is a good idea, isn't good enough. Where's the bloody evidence? Well, for me, it's the timing. I mean, we're talking about introducing this measure now, which was never introduced before against the backdrop of a situation in the country of over 90% vaccination. So either... The vaccination is working and having an impact and it certainly seems to be in the sense of lessening the symptoms on people and that people aren't dying at the same rate or aren't suffering from COVID at the same rate. So it seems to be having that impact. So why are you doing all these other things when you didn't do them when there was no vaccination? It doesn't make any sense at all to yeah, me. Like, and you know? Ireland has one of the lowest morbidity rates now in, in the whole of the EU. There's countries, of course, that are suffering a lot um, with high um, ICU um, rates. Like in Belgium, there's over 650, I think, in ICU currently. Um, in Germany, Slovenia, Austria, but they also have low vaccination rates. Like in Belgium, it's still quite low compared to in Ireland. It shot up to 90 as soon as the vaccine was available. And we're already talking now about the booster. So... It is a bit interesting to see about what measures we develop now and you know, this well, time. Well, it's the same point. Where why crucial. are you excluding people from other medical treatments because of COVID then as well? Like, you know, so, and, and then, as Mick was saying, the mental health implication on, on kids and stuff. But it seems to be even worse. The con- every passing day, they're getting even worse in how they're the, dealing with it. The latest, the latest statistics that we've seen, uh, for everyone dying of COVID in Ireland today, uh, there's between six and eight dying of cancer. And cancer operations are getting cancelled because of COVID. Now, where's the rationale? Mm-hmm. Mm. 
It doesn't make any sense. And listen, obviously, Claire mentioned uh, the uh, the refusal to lift the trips waiver. Now, I mean, I, I heard was politicians were on the radio this week almost defending the European position and that, oh, the Parliament uh, voted in favour of lifting it, uh, so uh, we're all innocent, right? Listen, 27 member states sat down at council and discussed this. Not one of the 27 asked for the patent to be lifted. Mm. Not one agreed to share in the technology and the knowledge, the know-how with the Global South. Mm-hmm. Because they said they were, and, and they were literally protecting big pharma profits. Yeah, and uh, I mean, and to think that Pfizer and Moderna, who made thirty-four billion last year in the last twelve months, thirty-four billion, are now telling us that we need one every year. I bet they bloody do think we need one yeah. every year. Mother yeah. of and they God. want to protect that market. They don't want the technology being but, used by others. You yeah, know? we literally they. The 27 member states voted to let the people in the global south, those that want the vaccine, uh, the votes, no, you can die instead because we're protecting big pharma problems. Well, now they're putting in travel barriers then to stop them getting here rather than dealing mm. with the vaccine, which is completely unworkable anyway, given the mobility on a global scale. And Ireland is a member of the WHO. Why are they completely ignoring the advice of the WHO? Because mm. they're totally ignoring it. Mm-mm. I know I know health is a, is a competence of the member state, right? But I mean, I mean, what's the point? It's just, again, it's, it's a neat, I suppose as well, the difference is they're putting absolute panic into people. I mean, it's caused huge upset for people in the run up to Christmas in terms of, uh, you know, testing requirements. Are there families who are coming home going to be required going into a hotel and all, all of this kind of thing? But again, in Ireland, and it's important, the reaction is completely disproportionate to everything that's happening, say, over here. Life is more normal. People are going on and it is driving people insane mm-hmm. in Ireland and it's causing huge anguish and mental health stress because of the way they're handled. I mean, people do have to get on with their lives in a careful way as well. But the reaction to the, the latest variant, given that it does, the symptoms don't seem to be particularly bad. Yeah, it's still early days, outrageous. but yeah. Yeah, definitely. Let's let's park COVID now because it's we don't want to take all our time today. We could talk about it for ages for sure. There's so much to say. But there's been a lot else happening this week uh, in your committees. Um, now, one of the committees that is kind of a funny one that you're on, Claire, is a special committee that's set up just for a year to deal with foreign interference in our democracies. And it's basically just on that topic. Now, you were in that committee this week. What was happening there? I look at it. it I, I find this committee utterly demoralising, really, like because it's so just geopolitically orientated against our so-called official enemies. Like the committee was set up and it's supposed to deal with foreign interference in the democratic processes in the in the EU. But instead, it's basically used as a free for all to target Russia and China in particular. And I mean, we had a committee meeting this morning, which was on interference in the Western Balkans. And they're giving out hell about China having the absolute nerve to come into some of these countries now and they're working in the field of education and in culture and so on. And kind of like, why are they coming in here muscling in our territory? I mean, what do they want? Do they want them to come in with bombs? Like, do you know what I mean? And why is this the territory of um, the European Union? I mean, it's the same stuff that with the um, Financial Times has gone, oh, China is investing in Vietnam in a high-speed radio. How Laos, dare yeah. they? Do you want them? Yeah. Do you want them to come in and drop a feckin' bomb like the Americans? Like, yeah, they're furthering their economic interests. So what? That's what you're doing. And the Foreign Interference Committee kind of targeted Russia. They did 
a report this morning and their experts were from the Atlantic Council and from the National Endowment of Democracy. And they targeted said that there was a big problem with um, dis- uh, disinformation on social media platforms coming from Russia, China and Iran. That was the whole thing. But there was no evidence really at all other than the stuff that the, the point we made back was, listen here, lads, this technology was manufactured and created by Israel more than a decade ago in response to the um, atrocities against the people of Gaza and the sympathy that was being generated in that. Israel pioneered this technology of false sort of state actors spreading misinformation and propaganda on their own behalf. And they they had 30 platforms in Israel in multiple languages to basically set the scene and wane away sympathy from Palestine. The Gulf states do it. We had articles from the, the Guardian 10 years ago saying that the US developed this, uh, fa- I suppose, fake false Facebook warriors and so on. They're all at it. So why are they targeting Russia, China and Iran who came late to the table? We should be in a place of saying any state actor manipulating and trying to manipulate, um, you know, create false profiles and manipulate public. It should be wrong for everybody. So why just target them? But a lot of the stuff actually that they were given out about wasn't false information at all. It was the likes of, there was a case study in Iran and they said, well, Iran now is uh, spreading uh, information amongst its neighbours that is pro-Iranian. Like, And I said, well, do you want them to spread anti-Iranian stuff? What do you do? You go into those countries as the EU and try and promote yourselves. What are you talking about? And one of the journalists came back, well, no, uh, one of the experts. We have to say that Iran is one of the most prolific actors uh, in active in this region. I said, it's their region. That's <laughs> where they bloody live. The European <laughs> Union doesn't live there. Yet you're opinionating on Syria and on Yemen. Iran is their neighbour and they don't have a right to have a foreign policy. I mean, it's really scary stuff, but this is what they're I basically mean, saying. But isn't it scary, though, for the European Parliament to bring in the Atlantic Council and the National Endowment for Democracy as if they were neutral observers? Listen, these guys are representing the US uh, imperialism morning, noon and night and they live they live 5,000 kilometres from here right I mean but the Atlantic Council and the National Endowment for Democracy are 100% biased uh, in favour of everything that America does the National Endowment for Democracy have boasted they boasted that they do openly today what the CIA used to do secretly now, I mean, uh, I got into a bit of a, 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 a dialogue uh, at the weekend about Bellingcamp, as if they were an independent entity uh, pontificating on moral issues, when in actual fact they're funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. They're paid to be pro-American. Mm. Mm. The same as the National Endowment for Democracy and the Atlantic Council are, are two entities that spread information that suits their position. It's called disinformation uh, from another side. It's, they engage in fake news and accuse, and we're, but, but in, in order to defend ourselves, we accuse others of doing it. We had, we had a debate this morning on Korea, right? On the peninsula of Korea, right? It was actually very interesting, right? But I mean, uh, there, was, there was an ambassador from South Korea in, and he was actually good, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a guy in from the European External Action Services who was the usual kind of, you know, pro-EU, pro-US position on everything, right? But but that, that they brought in a journalist then, right? Mother of God, you want to hear her, right? She works for a US think tank, mm. right? She was a horror scene. 
right? It was, she was so blatant, right, that the, the Korean ambassador was a breath of fresh, from South Korea, was a breath of fresh air in comparison. And in actual fact, when I put it to him, listen, they're all on about sanctions, right? And seemingly the EU has more sanctions on North Korea than any other country in the world. Mm. Now, there's UN sanctions against Korea, mostly around arms. Then there's US sanctions, and then there's EU sanctions. I asked, I asked the, the, Korean, um, or the South Korean ambassador, I said, uh, is South Korea in favour of all these uh, sanctions? Given, I says, that the UN sanctions, I says, are legal, I said, whether we like them or not. But I says, the US and EU, if they don't have UN approval, the UN charter says they're against international law, so they're illegal. Now, I said, are ye happy with all the sanctions that are being imposed on North Korea or not? And in fairness to him, he actually came back in and replied to me and he, uh, and he said, no, he says, we actually think that sanctions are not working. And I, as I had said to him as well, sanctions hurt the ordinary people more than they ever hurt a government. And that is happening all the time. And he actually agreed and he says, we've got to reconsider our position on sanctions and we want some restriction. We want restri uh, an easing of sanctions uh, in the interest of peace. Yeah, and I mean, it's just terrible the bias like in the people that they invite in because when I raised the point about why aren't you dealing with, you know, the US and Israel and all these who are also doing the same thing, your man says, well, now actually, according to um, US data sets or according to the data sets, the Russians are doing it more, way more than anybody else. But they are relying on information from US data uh, sets released mm. by US based social media outlets like Facebook and the like. Like, is Mark Zuckerberg going to, you know, release information about the Americans doing this? Yeah. No, he certainly isn't. Like, they've been probably indicted in America for doing the type of um, disinformation that goes on there. So it's just completely one sided. I, 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 and talking about Political interference, right? I mean, last week they wheeled in Tikhodovskaya, an opposition figure in Belarus, to to address the whole parliament. It's interfering in the in the politics of Belarus. It's unbelievable. But it is so blatant. And and listen, on the issue of 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 cyber activity, right? We had a debate about a month ago on the Central African Republic, and it was all about uh, cyber activity on the part of the Russians in the Central African Republic and that it was really worrying and dangerous. And I says to your man, the, the, the military fellow there, and he was actually pretty good, right? And he was generally pretty straight with his answers, right? But I asked him, I asked him a few questions, but one of the questions I asked him was, I said, are you trying to tell me that the Russians are better at this cyber stuff than the Americans in the Central African Republic? Is that what you're telling me? The Russians are better than the Americans are, are they? And now he didn't respond to me uh, on the floor, so, and he answered one of my other questions. So I went up to him afterwards and says, you didn't answer my question, I said. So tell me straight, I says. Do you think that the Russians are better at cyber activity in the Central African Republic than Americans? Yes or no? And he smiles and he says, no, they're not better than the Americans. <laughs> but isn't this, I mean, the record, but, but they get so... Sake, like, come on, They're so affronted by it, like, yeah. but it was like the MEPs this morning, the discussion on the Western Balkans, and they're giving out about Turkey and China being involved in the, in the Western Balkans. It's kind of like, they're ours. We mm. want to have the sole right to influence them and all that. They were blaming the Russian Orthodox Church and all the rest for kind of uh, developing negative thoughts towards the EU. I mean, that sense of entitlement and ownership that mm. came from 
from Europe's colonial past. It's mm. clearly alive and well, but yeah. it's 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 shocking to see how much it's accepted, like just without a, so, a further thought. So this like, you know? committee that you're on, it's a temporary committee and they're working on a report, right? Oh no, so they love it. It's going on forever. It's, it's going to, I think, you think it's going to stay. For, for, oh, Jesus. <laughs> they, 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 anyway. they love it. There's but, nothing um, like love What's it. the idea behind the report? So they'll, they'll vote on that at some stage and what do you think it's going to say or what's what's the point of it to well, say? The usual, like our enemies are watching us kind of thing, you know, uh, we need to have more. So it serves one purpose. We're not and watching the, them. Yeah, and then, then uh, <laughs> we, we're under attack. We need more. We need more of these NGOs. We need more money in cyber defence. We need more Atlantic councils. We need more things to counteract their threats. And it's, it's an industry out there, an industry in paranoia that's making the security industry incredibly wealthy and it's just nonsense because a lot of the stuff they're talking about in I mean if China or other countries want to invest in in other countries in Europe so what do you know what I mean if they're investing in the, and one of the things and we tried to bring it in in like some of the things why don't the, is the neoliberal ideology behind this why is it that China can come in and buy up industry in Europe and gain an influence well because he bloody well privatised it to begin with <laughs> and undermine public services and when they come into countries then and invest in public services actually a lot of people in those countries are delighted because they're getting a service that they weren't getting anyway and they don't care yeah. who gives it to them well speaking about uh, the, uh, the f- military spend and public services, right? Uh, at, at, the C- at the Security and Defence Committee on Monday, uh, which I'd actually kind of forgotten about at this stage, there's been so many <laughs> no, no, meetings this week. But uh, uh, Breton was in, Thierry Breton, the commissioner, mm-hmm. and uh, he's involved in the financial end of it and he has a, uh, a lot of say on what's spent in the defence area, right? And he was saying, we have to, all 27 member states, we have to work together, we have to progress at the same pace. And really, you know, NATO, a couple of years ago, asked that every member state spend 2% of their GDP on defence, right? Now, obviously, Ireland is not in NATO. There's... uh, there's t- 21 uh, or 22. It's simply it's the it's the beta. I see both figures this week, but there's either 21 or 22 of the of the 27 in NATO, right? So the others are not, but Ireland is one of them, right? Even though Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael like to put him into NATO, only the Irish public uh, wouldn't wear it. But anyway, uh, I said to him, I said, "Are you well?" I said, "I said Ireland spends uh, one sixth of this 2% on GDP. We spend a billion on defence, right? If we were to do what they want us to do, we'd be spending 6 billion. And that's what uh, the commissioner wants us to do. In our, he wants all the member states to pull together, mm. progress together, and let's, uh, we need to invest more, right? And uh, so I said to him, I said, you're, you're in Cook, living in Cookland, I said. I said, oh, every member state is in a different place. They have a different approach uh, to defence, uh, they have a different approach to what uh, if they buy equipment or don't buy it or whatever. I said, if the Irish, if an Irish government comes along, I said, and does what you want them to do and spends two percent of their GDP on defence, in other words, we increase our defence spend six times. I said, they'll lose their head. I said, they'll lose. They'll be thrown out of government. I yeah. said, we have a housing crisis. Our health service is a basket case, and I said, we have the worst public transport in Europe. And you want us to increase our defence fund, our, our defence spend by six times? And then he started, they were talking about the European army, yeah. right? The French are actually driving the idea of a European army now, but not everybody else is wearing it. Because the, with the Eastern Europe, 
don't want to know about it because they're afraid that the Americans will go away and they want the Americans to stay there to fight off Russia and possibly yeah. China. But also this new German government might be pro-EU army. The last one was, the Germans have always been a little bit hesitant and actually that's because of Merkel really, but now with the Greens, with the foreign affairs role in, in the German government, this new social democrat German government, they could be very much in favour. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think it's important to say like that while Ireland is sort of the side, I mean, those financial targets actually came from PESCO, exactly, which we did yeah. sign up to. So yeah. while you're totally right, that they're not checks, going to go into that place overnight. We should be very clear they're heading there. I mean, there was that conference that Simon Coveney hosted in the last week, which was basically like a kind of a, a sort of a, an arms conference, nearly an encouragement to the security industry in Ireland to feed into the European Defence Fund and so on. And when we've got our colleagues in the Dáil to put down questions on this issue to say, how come Irish taxpayers' money is being used to fund the military in Europe? The answer from Simon Coveney has been, no, it isn't. But that's a very sort of a um, misleading reply because the truth is, yes, it's not sectioned off under a budget, but we pay in and we're a net contributor to EU funds. And now for the first time, EU funds are directly being spent on on uh, the European Defence uh, funds. So there's no clause that says the Irish money can't go into defence. It's going in mm, and yep, it's going in right. and it's billions. And Irish companies are feeding off that as well. So it's very much going in that direction and it's becoming more normalised to hear this and this is what they're doing like that they're securitising civilian space yeah. and the Foreign Interference Committee is part of that so our response to normal issues about dialogue between neighbours and international diplomacy and is being replaced with a defensive and a securitised response and there's big companies behind this making all the money Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean people at home probably don't realise just how much lobbying goes on in Brussels, right? I mean, uh, I'd say if you'd asked anyone five or six years ago, who were the biggest lobbyists uh, in Brussels, they'd have probably said Monsanto. Monsanto used to have 60 people working full-time to make sure that their products weren't banned in Europe, mm. right? Now, obviously, Monsanto has been amalgamated into Bayer, Bayer now, the German company, and uh, unfortunately, Roundup, uh, you're, they're still allowed to put Roundup on your food and poison you. But uh, that was part of the role of uh, 60 lobbyists from Monsanto. But today, without any shadow of a doubt, the largest number of lobbyists in the Brussels region are mm. from the arms industry. Mm -hmm. And then you have think tanks like Atlantic Council and the National Endowment for Democracy, you have those then pushing the very and, same narrative. Yeah. And NGOs, which oh, yeah, no, like listen, some of them are, they sound nice and fluffy, but lovely, they can be yeah, funded. Well, <laughs> if you want to know anything about any NGO, yeah. just find out where they're getting their money. Mm. And they'll tell you, that'll tell you who they are. Mm. Mm. But yeah, let's let's move on to anti-money laundering because this is an interesting area where they use so doing a bit of work on. Maybe Claire, you can tell us a bit more what's the latest on this area because it's yeah. Well, we were both we were both uh, at a it was a joint econ and Libe meeting. So there are kind of five new big files in relation to the EU's approach to dealing with money laundering. Now, obviously, that's the process where dirty money largely coming from organised crime or whatever can become clean by entering the financial system. Uh, and it's obviously a severe threat to economies and so on. Now, one of the MEPs made the point directly, well, if you want to tackle organised crime, tackle it. Do you know what I mean? Money laundering is an offshoot of that. And there's actually been five EU directives already to deal with anti-money laundering, but it kind of 
hasn't been very effective because it's a huge and growing problem. And of course, we recognise it as a problem. So they're bringing in a new regulation. They're talking about bringing in a new agency to deal with it, targeting third countries and so on. But actually, so there's a couple of problematic things that are kind of interesting and feed into other areas. Well, for first... I don't think that you can divorce money laundering from all of the sort of offshore shell companies, tax evasion, tax avoidance that all comes out of the way in which capitalism organises itself. And of course, those um, financial activities or misadventures go on very much at the heart of the EU with a whole number of member states involved or European uh, official territories involved. Yet they have these blacklists for third countries and a lot of the anti-money laundering is targeted on that and it can have the impact kind of like sanctions. But one of the things we found interesting was one of their proposals is about limiting the use of cash that there couldn't be a transaction of more than 10,000 uh, euros. Now, at the moment, people might be aware that in countries like Greece, there's a limit of 500 euros on financial transactions at the uh-huh. moment before... Well, I believe it's 300. Yeah, I, well, actually, I've heard the two. I know your woman yeah. said, I she, thought she it was 300. 500. She said five, but I thought it was three yeah. actually going into it. I kind of corrected it upwards, but on average across the EU, it's four and a half thousand. Now they say, oh, well, this is just to kind of monitor kind of activity so that big movements of cash isn't going around and it won't financially exclude people. Really? Uh, do you know what I mean? How do you know that that's not the case? Because, and some member states are much more dependent on cash than others. But we are moving into a situation now, I think this is just one measure of a number and where cash is slowly being eroded, uh, which is very, very worrying for a lot of people. It's, it's making us totally dependent on technology, on smartphones, on your money being traced. It's and, making I mean, a huge amount of data about our personal lives to banks. Yeah. So. scary. Well, I mean... Yeah. If, if you have to use a credit card or your phone to buy everything, uh, all your movements are tracked. They know exactly what you're spending your money they on. They know more about you but, than you know yourself. Yeah, so. well, they do, they do because <laughs> they're actually put a bit more research into yeah. it, right? <laughs> than you would into yourself, mm. right? But I mean, so they, they know where you are, what you're eating, what you're drinking, Habits. what you're buying, yeah. and, and, and from whom. I mean, it is really scary, like. And I mean, and this has all been done under the umbrella of, oh, we're tackling um, money laundering. Well, in actual fact, they haven't done a great job of tackling money laundering. In the last 15 years alone, uh, a number of the biggest banks in the world have been caught laundering money. And you know what? All they're getting is small fines. They're like a slap on the wrist to them. Mm. KBC Bank were caught laundering billions for drug cartel Mm. in South America. Billions, right? They were, yeah. And and they got they got a, a small fine for it, right? But what what this legislation that they're threatening to bring in, right, is going to do is it obviously uh, it'll probably make it more difficult for the small fella to launder money. But is it going to stop the big people? And as Claire said, all this offshore stuff uh, is at the heart of all this, and this is where the problems start. And it's not uh, known uh, where per- people. Um, bought their coffee and how much did they pay for it? Uh, I mean, j- just to give you an idea, right? I mean, it's funny, right? But we had this debate yesterday, right? In the econ uh, in the econ Liebeck committee, right? Yeah. And uh, l- last night I ended up getting. Uh, I happened to someone sent um, um, a story around based around the same idea, and I sent it around to a whole lot of people that uh, that I, that I often send the podcast to, right? And there was a huge reaction to it 
the number of people who got back to me and that were really concerned about about cash disappearing, right? Mm. And yeah, that was fine anyway, right? I got this morning, right? I walk in from San Gil every morning uh, to work, right? It takes me 25, 30 minutes, right? I went out this morning, right? And the uh, heavens opened, right? It was booking rain, right? Oh, Jesus, I said, I may run to the to the metro, right? I ran down to the metro and I was drowned before I even got to it, even though I was only 200 yards away, right? And I go into the metro and I just remember, I have no credit card. My two credit cards are blocked. Mm. And do you know why they're blocked? Because... The bank that I have them with, the t- there was a transaction on both of them that they're querying. You couldn't, you can't ring up and talk to them over the phone about it. They weren't taking emails. One of the cards is blocked for six weeks over a payment I made, and uh, the other second card is blocked two weeks over a payment I made. And they regard both of them because both of them crossed borders. One of them, I was paying for something in Ireland. The other one, I was paying for something in Italy. Because they crossed borders, uh, they they blocked the two cards and they still haven't unblocked them, even though I've given them the reasons why the both payments were made. I eventually got someone that I could talk to Mm. after an awful lot of effort, right? But anyway, when I went to the Metro this morning, right, went in and... Uh, the machine, I had no ticket, so I, uh, I I went to get a ticket. The the ticket taking cash was uh, closed, turned off. The only way of getting a ticket was with a credit card, and my credit cards wouldn't work. I could not get a ticket. And I was lo- looking up at the rain, right? It was booking down still, right? Ah, yes, I said, this is desperate, right? I had, I had to... Get in illegally <gasps> and get out illegally. Right <laughs> now, <laughs> it can be done, but I mean, I was driven not to. Easy, it. I no, was driven but to I mean, it. this is really. I mean, I mean it, it sounds funny, but it's. Re- it, this is actually really incredibly serious because, in essence, you cannot get access to your own money. And they have the power to stop you doing that. And whatever about you, you know, people don't care about you. That can happen to anybody else as well. And how can they, okay, so this is part of a bigger thing other than anti-money laundering. The money laundering thing is feeding into it where all banks would be required to seriously question financial transactions over 10,000 euros. But as I say, in some countries like Greece, it's 500 euros, supposedly, so that we can have clean banking. But like, that's just utter nonsense. It's going to exclude ordinary people, the little old lady who doesn't have a mobile phone. Uh, and I've had people on to me, I've had people on to me saying, I don't want a mobile phone. I don't want my movements tracked. I want one of those old stupid Nokia phones. But I can't actually even access my bank accounts now because the new supposedly security systems to protect my accounts and protect me require when I log into my account, them to send me a message on my mobile phone. So if you don't have a smartphone, yeah. you can't access your bank accounts online and get your money and transfer your money. So how is that going to tackle money laundering? It's not going to affect the money launderers because they'll just move their stuff into crypto assets and the big wigs and and the harder things for economies to deal with. But it's actually part of a bigger thing, I think, to move away from cash, which is incredibly dangerous. And you see, for a long time now, accessing people's movements and their spending uh, habits and data, and this is the whole debate around Mm. data protection, which can sound boring, but actually is it's big business. It's your buying power. And I mean, you'll often find if you Google something on your phone, suddenly your phone 
phone starts talking to you and recommending stuff to you because it's programmed with algorithms to do that for you. And big brother and sister and daddy and mammy is absolutely watching you now. And I think George Orwell was only actually modest in his, oh, he his was, scenarios. He, what, he was downplaying it. You know what? He, he was only getting about 10% yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, and God be with the day that cash was king. Yeah. Because uh, I've always liked carrying cash. Always, yeah. and uh, I, I, I'm, I'm really worried about this. Seriously, seriously, I, I just think this is crazy, mm. and I think it's going to have a big well, impact on our people, lives. People know, and I don't know what it's like in Dublin, but here there's already a few places popping up where you can only pay with card if it's food or coffee or whatever. They yeah. only accept card. Yeah. Many places are like this, and they're going in that direction, and they say it's for security for they're not getting it's robbed or whatever. Yeah. But actually, in the end of the day, you're left with a choice. So, well, we've seen the scenarios where the technology fails and the bank account mistakes, and there's been incidents in Ireland whereby. Um, the system shuts down and people don't get paid and their wages aren't in and it's a weekend. If you're totally dependent on sort of electronic money, you literally could be left without the ability to to get food or whatever or as mix it to travel or move around or whatever. Yeah. It's just really... Uh, but that I, which is, it's very interesting. Um, but you can see how all of these measures are impacting on people's lives. So... Um Back to this um, Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee, which you were on for this joint committee. You also had this exchange of views with um, Raid McGuinness, who's the commissioner now for financial markets, right? So tell us a bit about what you said with her. Yeah, look, um, I, I, haven't, I haven't seen Mairead at the committee too often, but she's, it's, it's about, but, uh, probably the third time she's probably been in. But um, anyway... Uh, there's one of the things that's under her uh, portfolio is uh, the EU taxonomy business, right? And uh, what this is supposed to do is to provide, it's supposed to provide companies and investors and policymakers with appropriate definitions for which economic activities can be considered environmentally sustainable. Now, of course, uh, the main controversy in relation to this at the moment, it, to taxonomy, is that whether or not it will include gas and nuclear. Because if these are included, it actually makes a bit of a joke of it all. Because we've all, it's it's well established that they are not environmentally sustainable. And if 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 the EU taxonomy is going to pretend that they are, then uh, it just doesn't stack up. Oh, it's a joke. I I was on the negotiating team for this sustainable taxonomy a few years ago when we were doing the framework, the regulation. And the whole conversation there was, do we, if we have this opening here, do we open up the definition of sustainable activity investments to a huge amount of things, making it a whole, a whole thing meaningless? So everything is basically labelled sustainable. Or um, what do we do? Do we need to be more precise? Do we need a brown taxonomy, which would label unsustainable activities, which is probably more useful, in my opinion, to know what's actually a damaging or harmful activity. But what we're having now is the Delegated Acts coming with all the activities, specifying the details of which ones classify as sustainable or not. And the idea of them including gas or nuclear is just will make a complete farce of it. It's it's the whole thing yeah. is dead if that's included. And the commission is yeah. speaking out, outside of it's speaking out of both sides of its mouth. It says that it, the commission insists that its work is based on robust science based technical criteria, but then it adds that at the same time the, these criteria must be usable by market market huh. participants. Yeah. So I mean. But you can't have it both ways. Yeah, yeah. It, it's either oh, it's one is to the, 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 other, the, like, the yeah. science says it says A or B, and you can't pick A or B if the science says A, right? And the truth is, the science has said that we cannot, we cannot continue going down the fossil fuel route. And listen, 
the, the, the argument was being made, of course, right? Oh, countries are transitioning. Yeah. They can't do... You need time. And that's fair enough to a degree, right? But in actual fact, right, including gas uh, or the... Whatever taxonomy they come up with, right, it doesn't limit member states' choices in terms of their future energy mix. And as people would have seen at home this week, in Ireland, uh, the government is given the go-ahead for several new gas-fired power plants. It's actually going to lock us in. This is not transition. It's actually mm-hmm. going to lock us into gas till about eighteen or till about 2050. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lock us into it. That's not transition. This, mm-hmm. this is 2021, right? These, these power plants that we're going to build now, right, they're going to last for about 30 years. Right? At least, yeah. Yeah, so uh, that's us using an unsustainable fossil fuel for another 30 years, and we're talking about uh, using it as a bridging fuel? It's mm. absolute nonsense. It's just another example of the how diluted they are. Like it's del- delusion and policies and this balanced approach that they call it was the same in the discussions on a sustainable aviation fuel and the alternatives there where they're saying, well, we have to protect European airlines as well. So we'll bring this in and they'll have to do it for short haul. But we, we should be a bit flexible about mm. the long haul because we'll undermine uh, European airlines and give them a, a poor advantage then against other. But no, you won't. If you're taxing it all in Europe, it doesn't matter if it's Turkish Airlines or whoever, they'll all be done. Yeah. But it's just now, crazy. Now one of the questions I asked Marie was, I, I, I said to her, listen, the International Energy Agency's net zero scenario states that in order to keep the global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees centigrade, there must be no investments in new fossil fuel projects and gas plants must be shut down by 2035 in all industrialised countries. And I said, how are you going to make that fit in the EU taxonomy? If you're going to include nuclear and gas, now she didn't answer the question. Of course honestly. not. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 this but is really serious. Like, I mean, mm. this is making fun of it all. But like, with, there's already this PCI list that comes that came out um, just a few weeks ago during the COP. Surprisingly, with new EU investment money going into new transnational gas projects, there's a load of investment into gas across Europe and across the world, all under this mm. uh, subterfuge of a transition, which is complete completely not true because if it was a transition it would be defined it would have some sort of plan of how we get past the transition what's the next step it's a vague open transition and that will bring us eventually at some stage to renewables whatever so it's all this stuff which ties in to what we were talking about last week on COP right where India got hung out to dry on Mm. coal Mm. I mean uh, most developed countries have moved away from coal, right? Yeah. Because it's not economically uh, as as viable as uh, oil and, and gas were for yeah. them, right? Uh, so, uh, but oil and and gas were not targeted like coal was in COP26. Mm. The Americans and the EU purpose, ganged yeah. together to protect oil and fos- oil and gas investment. Yeah, and but, I mean, and I pointed out as well. Uh, uh, two weeks ago, that Biden has just given permission for the largest oil field gas. ever in the history of mankind in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. The largest oil field expansion ever. Yeah, it's mad. And like the whole purpose of the taxonomy um, regulation is to try and stop greenwashing. So that's the uh, that's mm. the actual basis of why we're doing this is that we'll be able to faithfully and, and trustfully a label have a label for certain investments and make it clear for financial markets what's a sustainable investment instead if gas or nuclear are labeled green it's the whole thing is a joke and it's been has no um, it kind of has no respect at all for the whole thing and that's 
it's it's the end of it there. And it doesn't, as you say, uh, prohibit any member state from investing in whatever they want. It's just about whether it's classified as sustainable or not. So let's see what happens there. That will come out very soon. Um, we have a lot more things to talk about, but I think next week is probably a better time to, to get back yeah, to some things. Yeah, the only thing I think we should mention is, I mean, we were honoured, as usual, to spend some time with John Shipton, the... Uh, father of Julian Assange and John spent a couple of days with us here as part of his most recent visit. He had been in, obviously in the UK for the trial that we went over to observe, but he's finishing up visits around the EU before going back to Australia before Christmas. And we managed to organise quite an impressive actually list of uh, meetings with MEPs. Um, and we made the point before that we had tabled a an amendment to a file recently which mentioned Julian's case and had the abstainers voted with those four, the motion would have passed, which was actually a big step forward that actually more people are waking up to the travesty that is the case against Julian and his uh, political persecution there of the case against him and the extradition to the US for uh, exposing US war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. So he met with the Catalans, with uh, the Five Star Movement, with some non-aligned colleagues, with Chris from Sinn Féin. Um, with some people from the S&D group, Maria Arena, some de La France en Semise, and others, and others who wanted to meet him, who couldn't meet him. So a really nice cross-section of MEPs uh, came out to meet him, and I think it's indicative of the tide beginning to turn. Uh, so we, you know, want... Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you see people uh, from all the various groups, not all of them, but a lot of the various groups in the European Parliament. It was lovely to see people from the, from the different groups uh, wanting to beat him. It was great. It was a plus. So I think we should end on a happy note, even though anything about Julian, you know, given that he is incarcerated in Belmarsh is not it's necessarily happy, yeah. but it is indicative that the tide is beginning to turn. And John made the point that in the early days of this case, there were three um, parliamentarians involved in in. Uh, Julian's case, of which we're two, and uh, now there's over 500. Mm. So that's a really positive, and we we are reinvigorated given the scale of colleagues who met with John this week to pick that up uh, early in the new year. Uh, and there was a, there was a public meeting organised on Tuesday night in the university in Brussels here, and there was a great crowd turned mm. up for it. And mm. the two of us, we spoke at it as well, but we done for hours. But mm-hmm. it, was, it was actually good. Cool. It was it was well organised and. Um, um, it was great to see the, the public participation in it, you know. Good cross-section, yeah, it was yeah. great. And we had Correa speaking online from it, sending messages, former president of uh, Ecuador, Niels Meltzer, and others also participated. So, yeah, no, it was great. Fair play to the Belgian gang here. And for people that don't know Niels Meltzer, right, you should check him up because he was the UN rapporteur on torture. And he actually uh, assessed Julian and found that he had been a victim of torture, that mm. he's actually been tortured in prison mm. with, you know, how they're dealing with him. Uh, but sadly, um, the powers that be uh, didn't want to know and uh, the case continues. And we're and talking about ultimately this will be resolved politically and one of John's ideas is that there should be a parliamentary delegation going to Washington in the new year so uh, to because ultimately Biden can stop this. It was started by Obama, continued by Trump. Yeah. Biden can stop this and uh, you know we're delighted that there is more people getting involved in the doll as well and hopefully some people from the Oireachtas can come along. Cool. Uh, 
Well, Shinoel, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with a load more topics. Lots happening still before Christmas. We can, so we could do it. We can do a session next week on the rest of what we were doing this week. <laughs> I know without even next week's stuff. I know. And we have a big Christmas special coming up, don't we? Yeah, we're going to we, should a, we should do a Christmas quiz <laughs> no, 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 or Christmas do. carols. I think we should do a, a session and we, do, we only talk about turkeys. <laughs> How about that? I thought you meant Erdogan, no, Erdogan there. Erdogan, yeah, saying. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Au revoir. Okay, Au revoir. 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 Au revo